Hello everyone, welcome back to Stand Up 24. As far as today, the plan will be we're going to start talking about cardiac arrests in general. Maybe a little bit of refresher for some of us, talking about our H's and T's. But moreover, it's going to be an easy introduction going into what we plan to talk about as far as primary and secondary cardiac arrest approach and how we treat them. The idea of this is to get away from necessarily algorithmic approach in cardiac arrest treatment, but let's think about the big picture. And it will be the build-out for probably the second half of the podcast to talk about some new things that are popping up all over the place. And that is potentially the use of epinephrine within cardiac arrest and how we approach it, explaining the points of CCR approach in cardiac arrest treatment, as well as use of cardiopulmonary resuscitation machines in the field and how effective they actually might be. We've uh, gone through great lengths to pull up research on all, quite a few of these uh, subjects, so we're going to be going over them in as great a detail as we can without droning on too much and making it too boring for you guys. I uh, hope you enjoy, and thank you again for joining us on Stand Up 24. So with that in mind, let's talk about a little bit about cardiac arrest. Um, still one of the leading causes of death. Hey, guess what? You died of cardiac arrest. How funny that that works. Surprise. Isn't that <laughs> how everyone dies? Right? I mean, ultimately, the coroner always looks at mm, sudden cardiac arrest is cause of death. Or a machete that caused cardiac arrest. That, that could be... We'll get there. Yeah, that could be a problem. But ultimately, that signing line is cardiac arrest. So guess what? You won't miss out. At some point, we're all going to have it. The interesting portion of it, they're finding these days that 40-year-old American males have, at this point in life, one in eight chance to experience sudden cardiac arrest. On average, the greatest number of cardiac arrest is a recent look, cardiocerebral and cardiopulmonary resuscitation update of 2017. Japanese men and American general public, somewhere in the average of the 60s to 70s, we are doomed for it. Now, I know we might think that that's a long time away, but... <laughs> It's actually a fairly young number, and I'm sure from our experiences and certain experiences out in the field that they can relate, we're seeing a certain amount of patients that are anywhere from 40s to 50s that are going into cardiac arrest. With that in mind, we have to understand what the cause of the cardiac arrest is. Uh, I think the biggest thing that it delineates is there's two different cardiac arrests, essentially. Bear with me. There's the primary cardiac arrest, and then there's the secondary cardiac arrest. And when I mean primary cardiac arrest, this is literally somebody walking along in the mall, drops dead. This is your sudden cardiac arrest. Unbeknownst what happened, it could be major clot that was thrown in the coronary artery, you know, pulmonary embolism that was just that large, like the 13-inch one that they, you know, recently removed from somebody. But anything that facilitated immediate cardiac arrest, not exacerbated by other issues, whereas that's the portion of the secondary cardiac arrest that comes into play. And in the secondary cardiac arrest, it's everything else that's leading up to it. I mean, in full circle, it ties off with the H's and T's. It's everything that was causing up to it. Could it be the COPD that's been getting progressively more hypoxic and hypercapnic and not being able to get rid of that and eventually the hypoxia was so severe that that led them to now be hypoxic, hypo intensive and eventually bradycardic code done PEA rhythm maybe something else whatever or is it as Jazane mentioned wonderful machete I bled out I'm hypovolemic and dead it's an amazing thing so that's the biggest draw between primary and secondary cardiac arrests ultimately they still get the main treatment which is thump on their chest but I think that there is something about the way we can approach it and discuss how are the areas already approaching it and changing the dynamic. So let's talk about chest compressions. It's the quintessential, it's the things that will change somebody's 
life and outcome in cardiac arrest. And it has changed quite a bit over time. For the longest period of time, ACLS that we all know has been 30 to two, five cycles, and then reassess, keep going with it, and it's accompanied with epinephrine and IV fluid administration and everything else that we've had to do. And amazingly, when I look back at some of the information, it's amazing to notice that even since 1990, uh, University of Arizona Sarver Heart Center Resuscitation Research Group has been doing studies on how effective we actually are in out-of-hospital treatment of CPR and in-hospital treatment of CPR. And what they realized by looking at all of this is our cerebral perfusion pressures were terrible. There was so many breaks that were taken into it, which added into other issues kind of arising from it, whether it be proper circulation of the coronaries or lactic acid within the body building up, making it more acidotic and harder to respond. As they went forward, by 2002, they actually started developing the CCR protocol because... No bystander wanted to do CPR because there was that whole mouth-to-mouth aspect of it that we were thinking about. Gross. Mm, lung butter. <laughs> As we talk about lung butter in my mm. nose right now. But um, nobody wanted to do it. So how do we improve it? The biggest thing that they looked at is how do we change it? What does it take? It's the continuous compressions that will make a difference overall. Their biggest push was all it takes is 200 to start. What we don't realize in even a sudden cardiac arrest, what happens when just somebody drops dead is there's this, as I would call it, like a left to right shift of the blood pooling within the heart, which actually does not help us out. All blood somehow shifts from the left ventricle right over into the right ventricle. So you've got no output. Even if you start, you've got no output on your left ventricle to perfuse anybody. You've got nothing going to the brain. And on top of it, all the fluid is backed up into the right ventricle, which is such a small and useless ventricle. And that's where they kind of jumped on the whole initial 200. Hit him hard, hit him fast, let the chest recoil completely. So we are allowing that negative interthoracic cavity to really pull more blood through the vena cava into that side and help yourself with the overall uh, compressions and blood flow. So just to kind of close in on those of you that might not be familiar with continuous compressions, the goal with that is to actually hit 100 to 120 compressions a minute. Think about 30 to 2. So if you're doing allowing full recoil and you know whatever you're sitting there counting one and two and three and four and five and you hit 30. All right, I'm going to pause at two seconds for someone to ventilate my patient. So now after we pause for someone to ventilate my patient, then we restart again and think about they tell you this at the beginning of every BLS, ACLS course. They show you that chart where you're doing compressions and perfusion goes up. And then we stop for two seconds or two, sorry, two ventilations for 10 seconds. And then perfusion goes down. Go figure. Not new information. We all know this, but we're still for some reason preaching this as the standard. So in contrast to continuous compressions, we keep that perfusion up as long as we can for two minutes. You know, granted, looking out for things like our my teammates doing adequate compressions. Do we have a mechanical device that can do compressions for me? A luxury that we will talk about. And oh, yeah. do we even need to be pausing to ventilate? And with that, so with the continuous compressions protocol, we actually can do passive oxygenation. So what does that mean? Why is that useful? So what we're doing with these patients is we're throwing in an adjunct. So NPA, OPA, keeping their airway open, throwing a non-breather on 15 liters. Oh my God, you're not bagging. They're coding. What are you doing? Leave them alone. Here's why. I'm doing these compressions, okay? So their chest is recoiling. With that, that is actually going to cause some oxygenation to be 
passively sucked in, like a Venturi effect. So they're going to oxygenate. And I think Alex had a statistic on how long you actually, before you get hypoxic, truly. Yeah, they were they actually, within the study that they did at U of A, when they were starting to approach this whole CCR thing, is they, they were amazed at the fact that the uh, partial pressure of millimeters of mercury within the blood was actually pretty high initially on cardi- sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, within the first nine and a half minutes, for example, if you looked at an SpO2, it had only dropped from 97 to 93. And 93, as we talked even before in the previous podcast, is actually more than more than fine. There is still so much residual high, uh, high oxygen concentration within it. And even with passive oxygenation, as you're mentioning, you're indirectly making it breathe. It's going in. Even as you let go on the chest, that's the negative pressure being created and it's pulling back the air into their lungs. Correct. You're sort of, think about it like mimicking what ventilation is, ventilating. So, okay, you are bagging your patient. Think about what happens when you bag your patient. You're adding positive pressure. So you're forcing air in, fine. Maybe you're even timing it with compressions because you're that great. I'm not. Um, it's all those guys that count one and two and three and right, four right. And, and, and have the squeaky Andy. and you have the squeaky oh, it toy. Be crazy! Stop <laughs> counting during my code. It's counting your head. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing that, but we're increasing that inner thoracic pressure. So with that, over time, what's happening? We're decreasing our preload to the heart. So more pressure in the chest, less return to the vena cava. So now we're kind of undoing even more of our work if you really think about it over time, especially if you don't have an advanced airway in. So now, if you're just doing passive oxygenation, we're allowing that full expansion um, as it's needed. The body can kind of respond how it needs to to get that oxygenation in, at least within the first couple rounds of this cardiac arrest. Any pauses will just be more detrimental overall. The biggest thing that I was kind of looking at it is, as you said, any pause will have any cerebral perfusion pressure drop, any coronary artery perfusion drop, and overall you're not building the pressure that you need to get potential ROSC. I mean, essentially when we talk about it, we talk about end tidal CO2 greater than 10 is perfect. If it drops below 10, change compressors, you know. Um, But the reality is if you're starting to get your in tidal CO2 readings actually up to towards 18 and you're doing proper resuscitation by addressing H's and T's, you have a great chance of ROSC actually occurring. But we just have to be very mindful of all these little things adding up together between the pauses, between the H's and T's treatment and everything else that we're doing with drugs that we'll discuss a little bit later. One way to minimize complete CPR interruptions has been the approach of using mechanical devices for CPR. Some of the recent ones, we've got Lucas out there. We've got these old autopulse as well, which is more of the band uh, around the chest approach, whereas the Lucas is still the central chest compressor piston that works, and it works really well. I've had a chance, op- I've had an opportunity in my career to use both. In the fire service, had a chance to use these old autopulse, which was actually really good. I liked how it was fully squeezing the full chest all the way through instead of just a, cent- a central spot. Whereas once I got introduced to the Lucas, I was impressed with the fact that it's got a larger cup. It actually sucks down on the body really well. But again, with those, there's limitations. Recently, the Journal of American Heart Association has actually looked into use of mechanical CPR machines. And Lucas is one of the ones that they used. They used 16 swine, or 16 pigs, that they put in sudden cardiac arrest and started looking at between the ones that received, eight of them received CPR machines, and eight of them did not use CPR machines. They used just simple manual labor of CPR. The amazing part of it, initially, within the first three minutes, all numbers were identical. What they actually ended up looking at is cerebral perfusion pressure 
overall the end tidal CO2 readings and seeing the cardiac output overall. Initially identical, everything was great. Once we started moving the patients and they started getting into the ambulance and moving down the road, the numbers became very separated. Pigs that received the machine-assisted cardiopulmonary resuscitation, their numbers were remaining to be high in regards to greater improvement. So cere cerebral perfusion pressure was really good, and tidal CO2s were up in the 30s range, whereas in comparison, unfortunately, ones were using regular CPR, they just dropped off very, very well. The amazing part of it overall, survival rate of both, great. All but two pigs survived the whole study. The two pigs were unfortunately on the regular CPR side. They're not sure if there was anything else attributed to it. But what the amazing part that it was showing is actually how effective, once we start moving the patients, how ineffective our CPR can become. We all know from moving ambulances, stop, load them onto the gurney, move them into the back of the ambulance, this and that. And maybe there's a great place for CPR machines to just help us move the patient in indefinitely to the hospital with minimizing those interruptions. Yep, I think that's a great point. I mean, doing compression in the back of an ambulance is a feat all on its own and making sure that, you know, while we're loading the gurney in, you know, trying to ride the rails while safely getting everyone in and getting, while bagging and getting the monitor and doing all of that, it's not easy, let alone, you know, they always say medic driver, no survivors. I mean, maybe that's just me. Vitamin D works best, buddy. As in vitamin diesel, diesel. drive faster. I can get them there and they'll survive. Not if I'm driving. Um, <laughs> As we look into overall cardiac arrest approach, we have to address the H's and T's. Sometimes it's one thing that we will do some things naturally as we start treating the patient without thinking about it, naturally taking care of the H's and T's, but there's other ones that we don't really think about. We've last time reviewed it in ACLS or Medic Refresher or wherever else we've done our learning. Andrew and Zane have done an amazing job looking into it just so I can do a little bit of a refresher for our H's and T's. Andrew, take it away. Uh, so H's and T's, uh, as we know, this is essentially a list of things to consider in our cardiac arrest patients that could be a reversible cause of the arrest. Uh, the idea being that if we can fix why they've gone into cardiac arrest, we can then hopefully effectively resuscitate them. Uh, I think the key to doing this correctly is one, knowing our H's and T's. You'd be surprised how many people can't name all of them off the top of their head. And then the next thing we have to do is to be able to critically think, use our heads, and look at the situation, our patient's presentation, and their history try and put it together and see which of the H's and T's are going to apply to the patients. As I start going through this list, you'll also notice that a lot of the H's and T's kind of go together. Sometimes one will lead to another, or sometimes you can have multiple H's and T's together that are um, causing this patient's arrest. Okay, so in, in no particular order are H's and T's. We've got hypovolemia, hypothermia, hydrogen ion acidosis, hypoxia, hypo and hyperkalemia, and uh, hypoglycemia. Which actually is taken out of ACLS, but I think we should also still consider, and I think everyone's on the kind of precipice that, well, you know, glucose sort of important, you know, the whole energy thing for your body. Yeah. But it is actually out of the HNTs and yeah, ACLS. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think it's the most important, you know, one yeah. out there, but get a glucose, just check, you know. Uh, and then for our T's, trauma, cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and toxins and thrombosis. Um, I'll start breaking these down a little bit. We'll head back up to the H's. We'll talk about hypovolemia. So 
as most everyone hopefully knows, this is essentially the depletion of our blood volume. Uh, a lot of times we associate this with trauma, and that's where we see this a lot of the times, is our patients that are massively hemorrhaging, but it's not always something that is uh, going to be associated with trauma. It could be our patient with a massive GI bleed, a ruptured varices, um, anything along those lines. Could be your dehydrated patient that's been in the desert for yeah, exactly. five yep. days. It doesn't always have to be blood loss. How do we treat this? Administer fluids or, ideally, administer blood. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a future episode, but mass doses of crystalloids is not ideal for a hypovolemic trauma patient. So, as far as our treatments, uh, I would say first is obviously stop any external bleeding. Next is going to be we're going to volume resuscitate our patients, hopefully with blood if you have it. Uh, our only choice on those uh, patients is going to be fluids. 20 uh, cc's of saline or ringers uh, per kilo of patient body weight is going to be ideal. Yep, of course, and also considering, you know, why do my patient arrest it? If it's a hypo true hypovolemia, then you shouldn't need to be too concerned with, you know, fluid overloading them because they have no fluid even loaded, so you yeah. can't really overload what isn't there. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I this is just maybe my opinion, but as far as fluid overload, you know, unless our patient is in some sort of profound heart failure, someone that's known to have an ejection fraction of ten or something like that, we're probably not going to hurt them with a bag oh. of saline. No, and um, studies have shown you're not even going to see effects for that for quite a while Hours until your resuscitation. Yep. So uh, our judiciousness with fluid sometimes is a little over. Zealous. Yeah, I always, I always kind of laugh to myself when I hear someone say, "Well, let's get lung sounds before we listen to, or let's listen to lung sounds before we get fluids." If you like, give them okay. a bolus and you hear wet lung sounds within the same five minutes, I'm gonna let you on a secret: something else is going wrong, um, and you didn't just drown them. If you did, <laughs> maybe stop letting them drink water or whatever they just <laughs> aspirated, because that's not the problem. Uh, all right, uh, hypothermia. Uh, this is one that I think gets overlooked a lot. I think people associate hypothermia with a patient that's been exposed out in the elements. You know, they associate hypothermia with that patient that was found unresponsive in a snowbank or someone that uh, fell through the ice into, um, you know, a cold body of water. But uh, a lot of our patients are hypothermic, and this is one of those ones that adds into hypovolemia because part of the process with that whole lethal triad of bleeding is going to be uh, hypothermia is going to develop. So as our patients are losing fluid, they're also going to be uh, getting colder. Again, that triad he's talking about is that lethal triad of death with that we have coagulopathy, hypothermia, and acidosis, hydrogen acidosis. Other things to consider too, um, with the hypothermia, why it gets missed so much, like you know, um, Andy was saying, we think okay, you fell through the ice, of course you're hypothermic. You've been out in the rain all night, you passed out outside and whatever, of course you're hypothermic. What about, you know, that elderly patient who had a fall inside their tile house and now they're laying, they just got out of the shower, they're laying there, you know, all of that water convex heat off of them, they're on a cold tile floor and they've been down for four days. Yeah, it's just prolonged exposure one way or the other. I mean, for, I know for us in Arizona, it's kind of a laughable thing at times, uh, at least in certain parts of Arizona. But it does get cold. Anybody exposed to a certain amount of temperature loss eventually will have these issues. So we have to be just cognizant and considerate. Yeah, and uh, you know, let's not forget our burn patients that are going to be super susceptible to them. Um, infants, newborns are very susceptible to uh, hypothermia issues. 
Yeah. So. They're not dead until they're warm and dead. Warm and dead, yes. Which is funny, because then once they're warm and not dead, we go right back to hypothermic treatment. <laughs> At least we talk about it. And then they're dead. Uh, so what do we do for hypothermia? We warm our patient. Blanket, hot packs under the axilla and groin. And uh, the one that I think is the most important and the most overlooked is warm IV fluids or warm blood, hopefully in our bleeding patient. Not many services out there are carrying fluid warmers. And I think they're a very valuable tool. And again, with the hot packs, making sure that's not for someone who is or is post-cardiac arrest, just for those who are hypothermic at a baseline. Yeah. Yes. We're just we're just talking about treating hypothermia direct. That's correct. it. Correct. Post-ROSC retention, that's a whole different story. All right. Next, we've got uh, hydrogen ion acidosis. So uh, we've talked a little bit about our acidotic patients already. This can uh, develop from a lot of different uh, causes. This can be a patient that... Uh, has an underlying acidosis issue. Um, a classic example of that is going to be our DKA patient that arrests on us uh, from their already existing uh, acidosis. All right, and uh, like we already kind of talked about, we've got that lethal triad that we discussed. Hypovolemia, hypothermia, and our hydrogen ion acidosis all kind of go together. Uh, one leads to the other, and they kind of exacerbate each other and leads to everything from breakdown of the clotting cascades to acidosis, and uh, even Zane's going to get into hypo and hyperkalemia here in a few minutes and uh, acidosis will cause a potassium shift at some point and then on top of all that we're gonna start seeing hyperkalemia issues with our patients. Uh, how do we fix acidosis? Uh, that's kind of a new discussion that's coming up for debate. Uh, the uh, classic let's give them two amps of bicarb during our arrests is not uh, as uh, common as it used to be. I think me and Zane and Alex here were just talking about that, uh, that uh, the, Zane, what did you say? The, the dog in the ER that wants to give six amps of bicarb? Give all the bicarb. They've been down 20 seconds. We're going to yeah. save them. I think at some point in my career, we were just great vegetable farmers because we would go down the line of cardiac treatment and then dump so much bicarb and they're like, oh, we got a pulse, but... It ain't much, but it's all in the yeah. work. Yeah, I've even, I've even <laughs> yeah. gotten written here that like bicarb is not a magic fix. It might get your pulse back for a few minutes. Correct. But. And to you know, kind of add on to that, a lot of our um, pre-hospital providers right now aren't carrying bicarb. Huh, but it's a lifesaver. Studies are showing it's actually not that helpful. Yeah, and the other thing to remember with our acidotic patients, you know, especially our profoundly acidotic patients with, you know, a pH of, you know, 6.8 or something like that. The effectiveness of our medications is very nil at that point. You know, when they're that acidotic, we can start dumping all the drugs in the world into them, and they're really not going to be that effective. Adding on to our ages, so we have hypohyperkalemia. I'm not really going to get into hypokalemia because at that point, if they've arrested from hypokalemia, it, we're behind the curve. We're way behind the curve, and to fix that is going to take time and not... Any, I don't carry potassium pre-hospital. I don't know of any providers who do. Maybe you do. But the time it would take for you to actually correct that without killing them with a lethal injection of potassium is sort of out of the realm of my concern. Now, but we will talk about hyperkalemia. Those are the patients we run into pretty often. Those are your dialysis patients. Um, your ones that are profoundly acidotic. Think about it this way. For every 0.1 of reduction in your pH, extracellular pH, your potassium actually is inverse by 0.6 milliequivalents. So say my normal pH again, 7.35, 7.45 for the blood. I drop that to 7.2 or 2.5, whatever. You know, Think about how much your potassium is going to go up 
inversely to that. So your potassium is going to increase. So correcting that potassium ultimately is kind of the goal to help with the hyperkalemia. What can we do pre-hospital? I'm not going to start them on dialysis. I can't do CRT. I can't do a lot of those things, but I do have a couple drugs I can play with at least to stabilize them to definitive care. We talked about sodium bicarb. Sodium bicarb is a big controversial thing right now in hyperkalemia. There's studies that say it's helpful. There's some that have shown it's had no effect at all. And the range of how much it actually affects the shift in potassium isn't very consistent. Some show that it's about a 0.5 mil equivalent shift in potassium. Some show it's 1.5 to 3. There's not really a consistent across the board data point for it. Um, but it is still recommended for hyperkalemia treatment as far as emergent and changing shift now. And you have to remember, it's not going to be fixed immediately. If you give 50 mil equivalents of bicarb, the shift for that 0.5 is probably going to take about 15 minutes, according to some of the studies that I read. Um, what is going to be more kind of critical for that that we definitely want to do is give calcium. Why are we giving calcium? So you have all this potassium in your body. Again, we're talking about hyperkalemia. Your heart's going to get pissed off. It's going to be toxic to the point of cardiotoxicity. So it's going to be susceptible to more arrhythmias, and we want to make sure that we're treating that so we can get them to definitive care, and we're not watching them go in and out of VTAC or whatever, um, by Gemini, things like that. With that, again, the calcium is to simply to stabilize the cardiotoxicity from the hyperkalemia. It is not going to have any effect on the potassium directly. When we want to con definitely consider giving that calcium, of course, with cardiac arrest, is when we start to see that widening QRS on our EKG, that really ugly, large rhythm where we're like, what in the hell is that? Is that idioventricular? What is that? But we know it's from potassium. Um, and if you had an exact level around a potassium level of seven is when we want to start administering calcium, at least in a emergent spot where we're not doing the whole algorithm to lower potassium with the insulin and all of that <laughs> other good stuff, which we will talk. And then calcium. Which calcium am I going to give? There's gluconate and there's chloride. I heard chloride's better than, you know, the gluconate. I heard gluconate's better than chloride. What's the truth? So the facts of it all is chloride is three times more potent than gluconate. And the reason that gluconate is often preferred is not because it works any better, but it's because cheaper. it's it's cheaper <laughs> and it's less caustic with administration. So we always worry about, oh my God, you're going to infiltrate their IV, their peripheral IV. I don't care. You're dying. With the calcium chloride, though, if they're actually that severely toxic, chloride is recommended over gluconate because it is three times more potent. So I have that much more effect on cardiac stability. And what do I mean by cardiac stability? Think back to, you know, basic A and P. How do muscles contract? The heart is the striated muscle. It's the same type as your skeletal muscle. When those contract, calcium is ionized across the cell membranes of the muscle, the sarcolemma. Yay, I remembered a word. I'm not sure where that came from. <laughs> um, but with that, um, if we are letting, you know, all of that just sort of excite across and not controlling it, we're going to get arrhythmias. So if we give that calcium, let it sort of contract as it needs, then we won't have so much instability, hopefully. With the calcium, again, we're administering that because we're trying to help stabilize the heart from that cardiotoxicity caused by the hyperkalemia. With the way the heart's contracting, it keeps getting all this potassium, thinking, oh, I'm going to get calcium in my cells, and it's going to contract. Going back to that basic A&P, calcium going into the cells of a 
striated muscle is what's going to cause that depolarization and cause that muscle contraction. And again, if we have potassium just overriding that, that's when we get those arrhythmias. It's getting overexcited with potassium and it's causing that toxicity rather than what it needs, which is calcium to depolarize it correctly and in an organized manner. So we give that calcium. It, the heart has what it needs now to depolarize its contractions with the muscle and gives it a nice, you know, hopefully even contraction rate without so many dysrhythmias caused by all the potassium floating around. So are we affecting the potassium level again? No. But are we protecting the heart, which is our ultimate goal, at least while we get them to definitive care to get that potassium out? Yes. Let's talk about hypoxia. Um, it's not uncommon for a lot of our uh, arrests to be uh, respiratory driven in uh, nature, especially uh, the vast majority of our pediatric arrests are respiratory in nature. Um, and, you know, when we're out in the field, especially with those sudden cardiac arrests that we get, it's very difficult for us to get an accurate history on our patient. Uh, but if we can get anything from, you know, bystanders, family, anything on the patient's history or what was happening prior to the arrest, it can really clue us in if this is a respiratory-driven arrest, if the, we hear that the patient was complaining of respiratory distress or has like a long COPD history or anything else like that that's respiratory in nature, it might get, uh, clue us in to the fact that this is a respiratory-driven cardiac arrest. Yeah, we just got to remember in every cardiac arrest, we still have to have somebody, and you're going to kind of go more into it in side podcast where we do communication, but whoever's leading the team needs to be good enough to be able to gather up the information to figure out what the story is coming up to this is they might find some pearls of wisdom what actually potentially caused the patient to be in cardiac arrest so just got to be mindful of that uh with hypoxia how do we treat this oxygen <laughs> um so uh that's a really simple answer but groundbreaking groundbreaking <laughs> right so ensure that we have an airway whether that's an ET tube an eye gel um a, you know very compliant uh BVM mask and then passive we're gonna, oxygenation. Passive oxygenation. And then we're going to do uh, high-flow oxygen. Um, and uh, along with that, uh, in our cardiac arrests, hopefully we are going to at least give some epi, which uh, is a fairly potent uh, bronchodilator, which should help with our uh, oxygenation issue. Uh, all right. Uh, on to the T's. Uh, I'm going to start off with talking about toxins. This is a uh, super broad topic. Toxins can be a whole plethora of things. Uh, this can be everything from our uh, intentional to unintentional uh, overdoses on a prescription medication. This could be your, you know, uh, TCA overdose or um, anything in that realm. Uh, this could be your opiate overdose, uh, ingestions. This could be your hazmat scene that you've responded to, CO poisoning. Um, yeah, it could be anything you could probably think of. Um, so if you know exactly what toxins contributing to your patient's rest, you might have some uh, treatments available to you. For instance, if you are a tox medic on a hazmat team, you are probably going to have some extra tools uh, at your availability than others. Um, or, for instance, if you have a patient that was just pulled from a house fire and you are one of the departments carrying a uh, cyanocate, you will be much more likely to administer a cyanocate to your patient to uh, treat for that cyanide toxicity that they probably have after being pulled from a house fire. Uh, aside from that, unless we know the exact specific toxin and we have an antidote you know, with us, for instance, if we know that this is an opioid overdose, we can give them some Narcan. But 
aside from that, yeah, toxins are going to be very difficult for us to treat. Uh, the key for that, though, is going to be take them to a facility that is appropriately equipped to handle those kinds of patients. We're going to talk about uh, thrombosis, which is a very fancy term for a blood This can have a whole kind of variety of flavors to it if you've got a blood clot in your brain it's a stroke if it's in your lung it's a pulmonary embolism if it's gone to your heart it's an mi if it's in your leg it's a dvt when it comes to cardiac arrests normally the ones that are going to throw our patients into a sudden cardiac arrest uh typically it's going to be our pulmonary embolism uh but also our uh, mis uh these are very difficult for us to diagnose in the field um we can have a suspicion of this but there's really not going to be a definitive way for us to diagnose this patient uh, with having a pulmonary embolism in the field. And honestly, with the capabilities that we have pre-hospital right now, we really aren't going to be able to treat a patient with a massive PE in the field. Very the only real good treatment for this is going to be TPA administration. So best advice I have for you if you suspect your patient has a big old PE in their lung is transport them to a hospital and hopefully they can get some TPA on board. And with that, the biggest thing with the TPA is make sure you voice your suspicions early, at least if you can with your radio report, or if at the very least when you're bedside with the provider and you tell them, I think this is a pulmonary embolism. Here's why. Here's how they are presenting, especially if it was a witness arrest and you've got a good history because that TPA is going to take time to mix. And after that, we're also going to continue to code them for probably 30, 45 minutes for that to actually take effect. So you need to voice it and voice it early so we can do that. Because if you tell me the last five minutes we're about to call it, it's probably not going to do them any justice. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is out of our scope, but there's a lot that goes into giving TPA. You know, there's a lot of things they need to rule out before they give TPA. You know, if a patient's, you know, got a ruptured AAA and we roll in and tell him, hey, I think he's got a PE and we give him TPA, well, we just kind of put the last nail in that guy's coffin. <laughs> so, um, yeah, unless you guys have any, anything else to add on uh, thrombosis, I'll uh, turn you guys over to Zane uh, to talk about uh, tamponades and tension pneumos. So since we're talking about thrombosis, the big issue with that, of course, besides you know interrupting blood flow to the general portion of the heart, if you have a bad enough MI, can cause cardiac tamponade, everyone's favorite scary tea that can happen to your patients. Now with that, we think, oh, typically it's just a trauma. Stab wounds, gunshot wounds, that's how you get tamponade, but there's also medical causes. And what is tamponade? Tamponade, all that means is that the ventricles cannot fill completely because of the fluid around in the pericardial sac is increased to a point that it can't get a good squeeze. So it's restricting the ventricles from actually pumping how they need to, getting blood into circulation, getting blood to the coronary arteries itself, to your brain, wherever it needs to go, and reducing your overall cardiac output. So again, medical reasons. It could be from an MI. An MI that gets bad enough or is left untreated enough, it's that farmer out in the middle of the you know, backwoods who ignores that chest pain for four days. Now it's so massive that you got those tombstone T's and their ventricular wall tears. Now with that tear, that blood is going to get into the pericardial sac, and now they're going to get a pericardial effusion and have tamponade. Hard to dis diagnose, yes, like anything else in the field, but something to definitely consider. A little background on that. So we do normally have some fluid around our heart in the pericardium, and it's normally about 15 to 50 mLs, give or take, that kind of just sits in there of serous fluid. Um, it doesn't really clot. 
it has a lower hemoglobin and hematocrit than regular blood. Um, so it's kind of like a serous fluid. With that in an acute setting, so if you do have that ventricular wall rupture or stabbing or shooting, an increase of about 100 to 150 mLs itself is enough to cause tamponade. So it doesn't seem like that much, but is in realms of what your heart needs as far as space to contract, that can really affect it. Now, in your chronic patients who have pericardial effusions that are known and they grow over time, they can actually end up holding about one to two liters of fluid without compromise as long as it's spaced out far enough for their heart to adjust that filling time. Um, so you'll be surprised how much you actually could end up pulling out of a patient. Yeah, it's wow. I mean, that's quite the amount. I did not even expect that mm-hmm. to be heard, but that's amazing. I mean, essentially, it's just a giant anaconda around your heart, and every time it pumps, it actually makes it worse and squeezes on your heart and kills you. Correct. Um, now, risk for pericardial effusion. So, how am I supposed to know who has that besides if they got a gunshot wound? Um, if it's a chronic one, hopefully they'll know or their spouse or caregiver will know and they can tell you. With that, though, there's other things like infections, um, pathogens from parasites. It can be a viral um, process. It could be from tuberculosis. Autoimmune diseases, because that has a large inflammatory process such as lupus, can cause issues. So what to look for, even though it's hard to diagnose without doing an echocardiogram, chest x-rays, CTs, those things that we don't have pre-hospital or might not have readily available, or maybe even at our facility at all, looking for how they presented, is there any sort of trauma involved, blunt penetrating trauma, and then we're looking at Beck's triad. So just a reminder, muffled heart sounds upon auscultation, jugular venous distension, and a narrowing pulse pressure. Another thing you can look for is pulsus paradoxus. No, it is not a Harry Potter spell. It's actually a thing. Um, so what you're looking for is a decrease in the systolic blood pressure by greater than 10 points with inspiration. Um, but again, this is not a very reliable finding, so don't rely just on finding that. That's why there's that triad, and it's not directly part of it. You can also look for electrical alternons on an EKG. So if you look, the QRS sort of jumps around. It looks like it's lower voltage, higher voltage, lower voltage, higher voltage. That's because the heart itself is trying to compensate for all that fluid around. It ends up actually swinging around inside the pericardium, trying to adjust. Now, treatment, before we just rush to, I'm going to do a pericardiocentesis, and maybe you can't. A lot of places, they've kind of taken that out of the scope or out of necessity because it's just sort of one of those Hail Mary, let me try something, see if this helps. The only places I've heard that have it in their scope is flight crews. I know um, some ground providers in Texas still Texas, do yeah, pericardial it's, all, it's, always, it's always Texas that has the... You guys with your great scope of practice and yeah. your evidence-based practice. Tex- but, Texas rocks. But even I, I think even with like our aspect of the job, there's so specific when we actually can even do a cardiac tamponade or a pericardial synthesis on a patient. So uh, I yeah, think it and just until, until we all start doing our point of care ultrasound, which <laughs> I'm very passionate about, <laughs> it's going to be difficult to diagnose to you know, treat to treat. Yeah. Um, but what you can do, so provide supplemental oxygen, go figure, um, volume resuscitation. So giving them more volume. So the heart has more to squeeze with more to overcompensate with supporting them with vasoactive medications by that. I mean, blood pressure support as you need it to buy time. It's not, neither of these are definitive, but it buys you time. Um, and a longer point bed rest. If you're talking to someone who's got a chronic, you know, effusion, have them rest down, rest with their legs elevated, take that pressure off the heart. And that's just my boring nursing stuff coming into play, but important to know. Um, another thing you can do in an acute setting is try at 
all you can to avoid mechanical ventilation because, again, as we talked about, mechanical ventilation increases, um, sorry, decreases venous return to the heart by increasing the endothoracic pressure. So we want to optimize their blood flow as best we can. Um, but if you have to intubate them, of course, do what you have to do to support them because if they stop breathing, not really do much for them, but something to consider. So the last T that we're going to talk about is a tension pneumothorax. A pneumothorax, again, is when air becomes trapped in the pleural space, whether that be from trauma or some other sort of etiology. And as that air increases, it eventually creates a collapse of the lung completely. As that lung collapses, it then starts to shift the mediastinum, which shifts your heart, and then eventually collapses your vena cava. So you've kinked the garden hose, blood can't get back to the heart, and now you've compromised your preload and overall your cardiac output. Um, with this, so you might just have a simple pneumothorax, reminders, especially in a cardiac arrest, the second you start ventilating them with a BVM or intubate or do whatever advanced airway, we're putting positive pressure in. Positive pressure will add more um, to the pneumo. So if it, you had maybe a small little 10% pneumo, you start bagging them, all of a sudden it's really difficult for you to ventilate. You're not getting good compliance. You're not getting good chest rise, which might be hard to see with chest compressions. Um, be cognizant that they might have a pneumothorax. And again, with that, um, especially if you do intubate, putting them on the ventilator, looking for things like um, high pressure alarms and poor compliance, all things that we talked about in our Wednesday Road to Rosh on pneumothorax. So please review. Thank you guys for all the wonderful information. I think it's a great amount of refresher, even for myself, listening back, kind of getting touch base with a lot of the H's and T's that I have not paid attention myself. Uh, stick around. In the next episode, we will be diving more into current cardiac arrest treatment protocols and how potentially epinephrine approach has changed in cardiac arrest as well. And we will completely tie in these two episodes together for you at that point. Thank you so much. See you next time. <laughs>